Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I will be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Caroline Strawson, who is an award-winning trauma therapist and narcissistic abuse survivor. I often compare our own relationship with alcohol similar to that of being in a narcissistic relationship. The feeling of being controlled, having low self-esteem, feeling isolated and alone, and you can also feel trapped, not being able to see a way out. This is a fascinating episode, and I hope you enjoy it. And on another note, so many people have been asking me about my audiobook, and I'm so excited to say that after months in the making, it's finally out. Woohoo! You can download it now on Audible. I hope it's worth the wait. Now on to the show. Let me know your thoughts on my Instagram at SoberDave. So hello, Caroline. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, One for the Road. And quite often when people talk to me, they say, oh, it's like I'm talking to someone famous. And I feel like that with you because, (laughs) (laughs) no, seriously, because you pop up on my feed all the time and everything you say is so powerful and relevant so I'm really truly grateful that you've um, agreed to join me today so thank you. Oh, you're welcome it's an absolute honour to be here it really is because this subject matter is so needed it really is. It really is needed and uh, a lot of people that come to me for help and they're mainly women but that doesn't mean say men don't um, experience things with narcissism and that. Um, they're mainly women who have got in trouble with their drinking because they're numbing out for different reasons in their life. But when I explore those reasons, there's a high percentage of people that actually mention that they are in a narcissistic relationship or they've been in one and now they've come out of it, they're still witnessing the same kind of thing. And, I, and I've written some comparisons down Um and it'd be good if you can relate to them as well of the experience of the people that um, similarities with emotions. Um, and I've written like denial, codependent people pleasers, low self-esteem, no confidence. They feel powerless, depressed, lost, controlled, no voice, you know, suicidal thoughts even. Um, every day's Groundhog Day. There's the feeling of no way out, highly anxious, disrupted sleep, lack of motivation, feeling brainwashed, feeling isolated, alone. These are all feelings, right? I can literally relate to every single one of those. I have personally experienced every single one of those that you have just reeled off, all of them. And this is why I wanted to get you on today to have a conversation because they're so similar, right? But as I said before, it's like a lot of people, when I explore it, they're like, 
even like I, I, I recommend you to everyone and they come back to me and they go, do you know what? I can't believe it. Everything she said is how I feel. They relate, they relate, you know. People say that to me. And so many people, I get so many messages when they say that post, my goodness, that's my partner, my ex-partner, my mother, my father. People don't realize this stuff because, you know, really when we think about trauma, for instance, we think a lot about, um, you know, if we break our leg or we're in a car accident. But actually trauma for most of us as human beings is relational. You know, trauma happens in unsafe relationships. So, you know, when I talk about narcissism and narcissistic abuse, I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't understand it. I just thought I was in a bad marriage as such. You know, but I needed to stay together because I was brought up on fairy tales and happily ever afters. And I didn't realize this, the, the nuances that came with a psychological abuse because I wasn't walking around with broken bones or bruises or anything. So I didn't realize I was in an abusive relationship. Yeah, I know. Um, do you want to start um, telling us about that relationship? Because you're quite open on social media. So it'd be good to hear more. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's so many elements to all of this about finding myself in an abusive relationship. You know, I thought I was an intelligent woman. I'd never be in those kinds of relationships. But of course, I ended up finding myself. I, I got married in my late 20s. And um, and even then, when I look back, I think, gosh, the red flags were there. Even a red flag where he got a tattoo with my name on three months after we met. But of course, because I was this codependent people pleaser and he was doing all of these wonderful things to make me feel good, I thought, wow, I must really be good enough that he's got a tattoo. Obviously, now I'm like, woo, woo, you know, sirens would go off now. But at the time for me, that was like he was filling that hole in my soul of like, I must be good enough. So when we got married, um, you know, things were kind of okay at the start of any relationship. As such, there was a lot of love bombing, saying and doing all the things that I needed to hear. And then when we had our son, that for me is probably when I think the the pivotal point of, of part of our relationship breaking down. And when I look back, there was a lot of jealousy from my husband at the time of the fact, you know, you've got a new baby, you need to spend time with your baby. And I was fully focused on being, you know, the best mother I could. But that obviously meant that there was a tension away from my ex-husband at that time, husband at the time. And then we decided after our son, we would try for another baby. And I had four miscarriages. So there was a lot of stuff going on. And I then fell pregnant for a fifth time. And uh, at six months pregnant, I found out that he was having an affair. And that was the first affair that I actually found out about. And you can imagine, there I was six months pregnant, just found out my husband was having an affair. And you know what one of my first thoughts was? I can't even go out and get drunk, you know. Mm. So even then, it was still the alcohol piece of I need to numb out. I need to go and drink something. But I couldn't because I was actually pregnant at the time um, as well. But really from that point, you know, my daughter, um, obviously, you know, we were very lucky. We had a very healthy um, daughter from, from that pregnancy. But from that time, our relationship really broke down. But I still stayed. You know, I was this high achieving perfectionist people pleaser didn't want to be a failure marriage to me was sacrosanct you know I'd be there I there was no way I was leaving you know I'm not a quitter I'm going to be there but really our relationship he worked away from home a lot he worked for a um, a cabin crew as an air with an airline so he was away a lot so I was like a single mother a lot of the time anyway and over time you know 
just there was no feeling as such and I try now and again to make it work and then it wouldn't and I was really stuck in what we call that trauma bond the abuse cycle of you know things would be good one moment so there'd be this dopamine and serotonin and then there would be the abuse there would be affairs there would be silent treatment there'd be gaslighting control manipulation financial abuse I gave up my job I was a stay a pure stay-at-home mother at that stage I was isolating myself um, a lot the way I looked, I was wearing grey tracksuits, baggy clothes, didn't like how I looked. And, you know, alcohol became, you know, started to become part of my life. Because even the friends I had at the time as well, Dave, it was, um, you know, we'd all meet up after school and it would be like, oh, it's wine o'clock now. And it and it was just a way of life. And no one thought anything bad of it or anything else. And But at the time, the alcohol element, that was, it was associated with being with my friends, and having a nice time because I didn't feel like in my home, other than being a mom, anything was good about any of that. You know, I was purely focused. And then in 2009, my mum passed away really suddenly. And me and my mum, my mum was my rock, like literally my rock. My dad is very unemotional. Probably the reason why I ended up in these toxic relationships was I was always trying to prove myself, particularly to men. Um, and I realized that, you know, the reason I kept ending up in these toxic narcissistic relationships was I was this people pleaser, you know, I needed to prove my worth. And of course, that's a magnet for somebody like a narcissist as well. They're always looking for people to make them feel better. So, you know, I would give, 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 and they would take, take, take. And it was like a match made in heaven in that scenario. But then a year after my mum passed away, you know, um, Things were going downhill, but I was still there. I was still trying to be a mom and focusing on all of this. And, you know, he kept leaving for work early. And there's so many stories of gaslighting that you wouldn't believe that he would tell you, told me he killed someone by mistake. I mean, and all of these things now sound really bizarre. But at the time when you're when you've had your confidence chipped away, you don't know what to believe, what not to believe. You just kind of take things at face value. It's not worth arguing back because you'd either get abuse back or the silent treatment. So you just completely shut down and just kind of go into yourself and that too. And, you know, about a year after my mum passed away, he said to me one day, I am going to leave you now, um, but just tell the kids I'm going to work early. And, you know, my daughter was about two and a half. My son was um, four and a half, nearly five. And I said, no, not this time. You need to tell them. And my daughter was asleep in bed. So he told our son within about five minutes and he fell to the floor going kind of no, because he was actually a good dad when when he was home. He became quite childlike as our son got older. It was like a really good, it was almost like there was two four-year-olds, two five-year-olds there. And that it kind of, you know, worked well for him um, with that scenario. And um, and then when he left, literally within five, 10 minutes, he'd gone. But at this stage, again, the altruistic nature of a narcissist, you know, I obviously asked, is there anyone else? And he said, no. His reason for leaving was he couldn't stand seeing me this unhappy anymore. So even at the end, I'm thanking him for leaving me, if that makes sense. You know, the gaslighting that had gone on. And so off he went and um, and he would come back and see the kids quite sporadically at that stage. I would leave the house and he would come back. I still felt like there was someone else. And probably about two months after that, I got a text that clearly wasn't meant for me. <laughs> but it was very validating in the moment. But also when our marriage broke down, I didn't actually realize the financial mess that we were in. So we were in over 70,000 pounds worth of debt. 
I wasn't working. I've got a very, very part-time job at that stage running a clinic. I was a podiatrist. And so the money coming in didn't equal the money going out. And then I'd got all of this debt. A lot of it was in my name that I didn't even know about either. Signs of financial abuse. And I I just felt really low. I was suffering with depression, anxiety. Every morning I'd be sitting on my bathroom floor, self-harming, trying not to have a panic attack, just feeling like, you know, I'm getting older. What is going on? I'm a single mother. And, you know, but I was so focused on trying to be a good mom. And um, and during that time with with the money, I put, you know, bills in the bin, didn't want to deal with anything, completely buried my head in the sand. And then in 2013, the April of 2013, I actually had my house repossessed as well. I literally lost our home. And that was a really low point for me that year, Dave, because I hit 40 in the June. And I thought, I am this 40-year-old single woman. You know, um, my ex-husband was still abusing me, which is what we call post-separation abuse. Um, he was remarried by this stage as well. But it, it was this ongoing perpetual abuse because I hadn't been working on healing myself from a trauma perspective and understanding the body, the nervous system side. I was reactive. I was angry or crying. So I would be crying and feeling really kind of morose and no energy one minute and then explosive moments of anger whilst trying to still be a good mum in all of that. And alcohol became a real part of my life. You know, I really struggled with sleep. I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts. I, they would spiral, you know, my mum's not here. My dad is really unemotional. There's never any praise or love from him. I'm a single mother. I, you know, all of this negative self-talk. I'm fat. I'm ugly. No one wants to be with me. And, you know, while still trying to be a good mum in all of this, you know, that was my drive, my sense of worth. I came from being a mum. That was the only sense of worth. So each and every day I'd make sure the kids had good food, vegetables, all of this. I was really focused again on being a good mum as that codependent people pleaser. And once I put them to bed each night, a bottle of wine would come out, chili snacker jacks, cheese and chive dip, and that would be my dietary choice each night. And I'd always say, oh, I'll just have one glass. You know, it was always, I'll just have one glass. Just take the edge off because it would start to make me numb out. But inevitably, I would probably finish the bottle most nights and up until the point where I'd be literally watching TV and I'd I'd almost have to be falling asleep, like literally like that, because I couldn't just fall asleep naturally because I didn't want to be with my thoughts. And then I'd wake up in the morning. There's a lot of anxiety. I'd be tingling in my fingers. And I kept putting that down to anxiety. I know that would have been a lot of the alcohol element of that as well. And then deja vu, the day would start again on my bathroom floor. Try not to have a panic attack. Grand old day. Yeah. Do you know what? Everything you've said there is what I hear and experience people with their relationship with alcohol. And this is quite often why I compare our relationship, because I always compare each individual as a bespoke relationship with alcohol, because you and me could drink one bottle of wine, yet due to who we are, our past experiences, we would react differently to it, right? But it, it's like, it's a double whammy, though, if you've had a relationship with a narcissist, right? Because you've got all that those feelings which I've read out to you just then, low self-esteem, no self-worth, and you just labelled yourself fat at 40 years old, single, right? But that then makes you drink, which makes you feel like that on top of that. Absolutely. And I was somebody, and I'm sure some of your listeners will relate to this, every single day I would say, tomorrow I'm not going to drink and I'm going to eat healthily and I'm going to start to exercise 
and I and and it would I'd start the day I well I normally end the day saying that and then by morning I'd be feeling rubbish and I might get to lunchtime if I was lucky thinking you know okay today today's the day but then as the day went on I'd get text messages I'd get this perpetual ongoing post separation abuse something might happen you know I might think someone looked at me funny or you know I was just so hypersensitive to these things because I felt so low in myself I I felt disgusted with myself. I felt so much shame. I'd lost my home. I'd got no money. I was fat. I was single. You know, all of these negative self-talks and alcohol was a, you know, and self-harm, you know, both of them were a way of distracting me away from feeling like this not good enough, really Mm. enough little girl, because it took me back to my childhood. But but the self-harm is the alcohol as well. And I guarantee you, right, if nothing happened that day, you would still drink because of how you felt about yourself. So it could be a quiet day, but you think, do you know what? Lunchtime comes and you've made all these vows in the morning that I'm not going to do this, do that and whatever. Lunchtime, three o'clock comes, you think, I feel so low. Like you're almost like war wounded by the whole experience, right? And then it's, that's the cycle, isn't it? So it's and it's a culture as well, the, the, the kind of friendship group that I was in. And actually, my best friend, who is no longer my best friend, because I realized she was also a covert narcissist, actually, as well. But the culture of the friendship group and, you know, it was a certain time of day and, you know, the kids might all be playing together and things like this. And, you know, we'd get a bottle of wine out as such. But it was never one bottle of wine. But it was seen as this badge of honor of by the end of the evening or the day or whenever we met up that there was this kind of sea of empty wine bottles as such. And it was but it was normalized. It was like that's how it should be. And I look back and I think it's the sh- it's shocking the relationship even before you know I went through my divorce that this culture of alcohol and you know and I'm not saying for people not to drink I mean I don't drink at all now um but just the whole stigma around alcohol as such and even now that and I don't drink if I'm out or anything people are still trying to make me drink oh go on have one go on mm-hmm. it's the one doesn't harm you and, that, and I think I don't want to get in that cycle again you know I value how I feel now mm. to feel any other way. And I imagine though, in your relationship, were you like from the outside appearing okay? Like did did like like the the mum and the wife and you was okay. So you was holding a lot of that internally, wasn't you? Hundred percent. You know, we lived in a lovely four bed detached house and you know, lovely couple, two children, everything looked lovely. But I contributed to that. I'd go outside the front door, you know, I'd get up, I'd, you know, put makeup on to try and make myself feel better. And I'd go out the front door and I'd be the smiliest, happiest person. Like literally, you would never have known, you know, if someone would have asked me, how are you, Caroline? I'm absolutely fine. How are you? How are the kids? You would never have known. I was the best actress, literally. People would have thought I was the happiest person on the planet and the nicest person on the planet. All of this. But what I was doing inside, it's like my body was screaming inside. Just notice me. Just kind of ask if I'm okay, and let me tell the truth as such. But because, again, because my ex-husband was a covert narcissist, so he was very charming. You know, even now, if you met my ex-husband, you'd think, well, what a nice guy. He's charming. He's lovely. You know, and you'd probably struggle to believe what I was saying as such. You know, but ultimately, 
behind closed doors, people are very, very different. And it's the insidious chipping away at your confidence and mm. little sentences and saying things and, you know, the gaslighting, the manipulation, all of these things that it's not like a light switch that happens. It's over a period of time. Yeah. Second guessing yourself. And, and of course, you know, because I wasn't a quitter and I, I don't like failing because failure meant I wasn't good enough. I would stay and I'd try and make it right. And we were just in this cycle all of the time, but you would never, ever have known. And I think that's what makes it really hard when we talk about narcissistic relationships, you know, because we've medicalized narcissism as well with narcissistic personality disorder. And, you know, the way I teach this is I, I don't buy into the medicalization of it insofar as how many get a diagnosis you know no narcissist is ever going to go I think I'm a narcissist I need to go get a diagnosis you know that doesn't happen by the nature of what a narcissist is so I talk a lot about um you know wounded individuals which is what narcissists are they are deeply wounded and their way of protecting themselves their kind of protector parts that come up I use a lot of internal family systems in my work they have protective parts like gaslighting, coercive control, anger, manipulation. And they're great for them because of their own emotional wounds. The problem being is when they project that outwardly, the way I received it because of my internal wounds meant that I need to fix it. I need to make it better. I need to mm, rescue. So yeah. do you think um, narcissists choose people? Absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't say they can't. I don't. When I talk about narcissism, a narcissist's primary intention is not to abuse and to hurt you, okay? Their primary intention is to minimize the internal pain they are feeling from their wounds. But by nature of their primary intention means that abuse then comes out, the projection of their pain. We are never, there is no scientific research to suggest we can change who a narcissist is. There's been fMRI scans, we've looked at research. There is no cure for it. And that's not me being inhumane and not compassionate to the wounded nature of an individual. It's not. We just know from research that that's sadly, once their brain has formed and it's been like that because they're not born, they're created. That is how they are. What we can look at then is why do we receive their projection in that way? The power to heal is within us. We hold the trauma. They are the narcissistic abuser. They won't ever change the abuse. That's why I tend to I don't tend to talk about being a victim of narcissistic abuse. I say I was victimized by a narcissist. They are the abuser. I hold the trauma. I can heal trauma, you know, meaning now my ex-husband is still the same. He hasn't changed. And we don't have much contact at all now, but he hasn't changed at all. I've changed how I'm receiving now his projection of his wounds. I now know not my fault I know no it's not because I'm not good enough and that's where my nervous system healing and the trauma work has come in for that it's so important that you talk about a nervous system you know and how you identified the behavior of the narcissist there is how I see alcohol because it comes in at an early age right and it charms you um nice perfume or aftershave white collared shirt and charms you makes you feel great Gives you confidence, woos you over, everything's wonderful. But gradually over the years, it chips away, chips away, chips away and leaves you a shell of your who you actually are. And that's where I got to in my life with my drinking. It's like I absolutely hated myself. I felt useless, fat, pathetic. And 
that's when I, I realized actually I was in a relationship with alcohol and it wasn't just the substance. I was in a relationship, codependent. It relied on me. I relied on them. And, and like, I really saw it as something different. And in my coaching, I, I help people. I, I even give it a name to people. I say to them, can you think of a terrible relationship in your life that you broke up with? And a few months later, you look back and you go, what, why was I even in it? Because you see it for what it is. And it sounds like that's what you, you've done. It really is. And, you know, I, I use um, something called internal family systems in the work that I do. And we look at parts of us. So we all have these subpersonalities, these parts of us. And, you know, alcohol is a part of us. It's a, if you think about, you know, whether we're a people pleaser, a perfectionist, alcohol, addic- any form of addiction is a protector part of us trying to distract and soothe us away from something else. And if you think about like the context of what you were just saying there as well, Dave, you know, when I think about my childhood, you know, I never thought of my dad as an abuser as such. Again, because what we're learned is abusive behavior is things like sexual abuse, physical abuse. But there is emotional and psychological abuse as well. And my father withholding love and affection and praise. I'm not saying it was abuse as such because that was down to his lack of parenting skills. Parents, But I really needed that. And my emotional wound that formed because of my father's lack of that meant I didn't feel good enough. Mm. My version of normal in a male relationship was to not feel good enough. That was normal. I needed to try harder and to do more and be more. So that was my version of normal. So if I wasn't in a relationship with a man, for instance, at some stage, I'd abuse myself then. So alcohol for me was a form of self-abuse. If I'm not in a relationship with someone, either, you know, whoever that is, and receiving the abuse, because that's what I know what it feels like to not feel good enough, then I'm going to find other ways of self-abuse because it gives you the same feeling because that feeling becomes your version of normal. You know, if someone had come and plunked Prince Charming in front of me, I'd have sabotaged that relationship because I wouldn't have known what it would have felt like to feel loved, to feel good enough just for who I was, because that's not wasn't my learned behavior from my childhood. So to numb all of that out as we get older and stuff, alcohol was a huge part of all of that as well. It really was. And I was always somebody as well, Deb, you know, I've never done drugs. That's never been my bag. I've never smoked. Never. But alcohol was the one thing in my life that I downplayed and would say, I don't do drugs, I don't do this. And yeah, I was drinking so much. I didn't classify it as a drug in some respects. It it was normalized. It felt okay. And and I was again all of the language, you know, I I I could drink you under the table. I can handle alcohol. And I could, even at university as such, you know, I could drink a lot and it wouldn't necessarily affect me. But all of that then kind of fed into it was okay. It's mm. normal. It's a culture. and Yeah, you know. we romanticize it, don't we, on every level, you know. And, you know, like what you were saying about when you present yourself externally to the world as this coping mum and business person and whatnot, I wonder how many mums in the school playground are actually dying inside, yet they're doing exactly the same, you know. Um, we- home and we start cooking dinner and the wine comes out and everything else and you know and I and I get it and everything but it's just taking a look it affected my health in the end you know I got diagnosed uh, with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease now whilst it wasn't alcohol related as such 
I know alcohol massively contributed towards that and the foods I was eating as well because I was eating a load of crap, basically. So the combination of the crap food, again, self-abuse from food um, too, and the alcohol really kind of, you know, I got diagnosed with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now, you know, and I've read lots of research about this, you know, it's a real silent epidemic, really, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, because we talk a lot about, you know, the liver from an alcohol perspective. But I know the alcohol still played a part for me in in diagnosis of that. Now, you know, I've completely reversed my non-alcoholic fatty liver disease now. So, you know, everything is fine. But if we don't know, we can't change it. And it is just like your podcast and all the wonderful work you do. It's the awareness around alcohol, you know, and what it can do to you. Because very often, just like stress, we don't often know what's going on inside our body until sometimes we get a diagnosis or, or it can be too late. Mm. Yeah, it's scary. I mean, you know, when I uh, released that one with Lucy Norfolk a um, couple of weeks ago and, and her husband died, like the awareness that that podcast brought, and it's like almost like, you know, I've got all these other stories in my pocket, over a hundred episodes of people's recovery, but that's why I wanted to do that one because it doesn't always end that way. And what you say about the liver is really important because if you haven't got scarring, you can review, um, return it back to normal, like pretty quickly. Do you know what I mean? Um, visceral fat. And I also have, you know, we have on my, um, my mum's sister sadly passed away from breast cancer and she was an alcoholic and we don't have any gene, you know, any breast cancer genes. And they said it was because she was an alcoholic, you know, and then another member of my family right now, he, he's been in the forces, he's been in the paramedics, you know, he's seen some horrific things, PTSD, he's an alcoholic. He's now got 12 months to live and he's in his 50s. He's in his early 50s. He's got severe liver disease and alcohol, you know. And again, alcohol has come from his experience in his in his life and not getting that support and everything else. And alcohol became a way of numbing all those feelings out. And sadly, and it is, it's so sad. We're kind of waiting for the moment for that to happen. Mm. You know, it's do you know it's important you say that right because when i was drinking i mean i don't know if you know this but i was drinking up to a litre of vodka a day at, at my worst right and i had one of these men's mot things at the doctor's right and i was absolutely petrified because i thought i'm going to get called out on this right so i went to the hospital had all the blood tests done and i said so what what are these for oh um liver function test and i was like oh my god this is it you know what is it going to come back and a week later, I phoned up and they said, your results are through. Can you come in, please? And I and I was like, this is it. I went in and they said, right, okay, we've had your results through. You've got high cholesterol, right? And that was it. So a, a liver function test is quite basic. Like if I was to go and have a scan, it would be a whole different matter, right? But what that did, I didn't think to myself, Oh, I've, I've had an escape here. I really need to look at stopping drink. I thought, that's all right. I've got away with it. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I felt the same as well with my drinking. I thought, you know, I can handle my drink. I could stop. And, and again, do I think I was an alcoholic? No, I think I could have easily stopped as such, but it definitely was a crutch for me. It was absolutely um, part of habit for me. And, you know, and, and even now, even the thought of even drinking, I don't even feel like, you know, I'm choosing to not drink, but I could I could do with a glass of wine, you know. Mm. Again, 
I literally, and I don't know if I've trained my brain in some ways with that, I do hypnotherapy as well. I literally, the thought of alcohol even now repulses me as a, you know, I am never judgmental on anybody else. You know, whatever anyone else chooses to do is absolutely up to them. But like you, like me, sharing our stories to bring awareness of, you know, we don't know what's going on inside of us and getting curious about, well, why do I keep doing that? You know, want to do that. You know, I'm all for optimal living. I want to live a really long, healthy life. You know, I don't want to just get old. I want to live healthily. Quality, quality of life. And, you know, I say to people, this is half the battle, right, Caroline? It's like, when, say you're looking at the iceberg, right, and you're on a, on a lovely boat and you're snap, snap, looking at it, all the sun shining on the side, look at that beautiful picture. And I say, right, dip your head down under the water one inch and see what that looks like. I go, oh, that's horrible, right? I don't like that. And a lot of people are scared of giving up drinking because they don't know how to deal with their past trauma. Right, absolutely. And that's understandable. And I think, you know, this is why I talk a lot about trauma and healing and that, because, you know, no one's here to judge you. And I think even from like a parts perspective. So again, when I um, work with people with internal family systems, you have to look at root cause of things. You know, if you have somebody who goes into an addiction clinic, even for alcohol, drugs, whatever that might be, and you literally get them cold turkey, you know, they come off it. What you're not doing is you're not taking away the root cause. They're going to come out and they're going to find something else to numb them out from the root cause of why they're even in there and what they're doing in the first. That's why we have to be really careful with this. And sometimes it could even be a more destructive, um, you know, you might get somebody off um, alcohol, but then they might come out and it could be coke or heroin. It could Mm. be self-harm. It could be suicide. Shopping. Exactly. (laughs) I used to do that as well. Yeah. There's all these things. And when I look back, you know, where I felt such shame, I didn't have any money. I was spending money and all of this and alcohol and food and all of this. And I look back now with such kindness to my younger self to think, wow, you were so wounded, Caroline, that you were so desperately trying to distract away from a core wound of not feeling mm. good. I'd come from your childhood with your father. Mm. And, you know, so I had to go back. I had to do a lot of somatic healing. I had to go back and really look at, you know, not I. I knew I was good enough. I kind of knew at this stage, but I didn't feel it. And that's where, again, and I know you work around the nervous system. That's where we have to really work at that deep nervous system level, so we know it and we feel it. Because if we feel it, it's less likely that those destructive parts of us will come up. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about this one, right? So when we stop drinking, right? It's like learning to drive, right? It's all the practical stuff, right? Because I quite often say to people. Try and like park up all the stuff that has been like problematic to you, the past, little T's, big T's, you know, and put them over there in a nice little place. Don't chuck them over there and go, oh, I can't deal with it, can't manage it, because that's later on. But deal with not drinking for today, like deal with your cravings, go to bed early, all the practical tips, right? But if you're in a relationship with a narcissist or you've come out with a relationship, how can you manage that as well as giving up drinking? Yeah, I think the initial thing when you initially come out of a relationship with a narcissist is the the one addiction you need to work on first is the trauma bond, the addiction to the cycle, the addiction to the dopamine, the serotonin and the cortisol and the adrenaline of this kind of cycle because we've become physiologically addicted to that. And I see that 
people become trauma bonded in their business and people are addicted to struggle because we're used to having a great dopamine rush mm. and then the cortisol rush and we become addicted to this cycle and that's why you know some people are on the verge of success sometimes or doing something great and then something bad will happen and they say oh this bad things always happen to me but a lot of it is creation of things because we're craving just like we might crave the alcohol we're craving the cortisol release we're craving the dopamine release so we're finding things then that will give us all of those elements but to do that initially when you come out of a relationship we need to break the trauma bond so when I work with people we really have to look at the almost like you were saying the strategy in a way of communication you know if you have children with a narcissist then we have to set up a really robust form of extreme modified communication minimal communication separate email address buy an old nokia phone so that's just for emergencies blocked on your phone so you're not seeing an email come through or a text coming through you're still ticking a box with the court that you've got communication on a separate email and you know and also a phone for emergencies and because otherwise what it is like is if you're trying to heal and you're you know down the line maybe you want to reduce your alcohol intake and that if you don't work on that initial communication it's like you're walking around with a drip you're walking yeah. around with an injection of this addiction all of the time and everything else is going to be a struggle you have to set the foundation and the platform for effective healing to happen like with alcohol or in anything else, you know, nervous system healing, anything, you have to set up that communication initially. It is the most important part of it. And it's often the hardest part of it because every cell of your body wants to respond, wants to go back. You know you shouldn't, but your body's going, I need the cortisol, and you want to do all of those things. So it's in stages, and I think it's not shaming people to know that this is going to take time. You know, we don't have to do everything at once because your system will flood and it will shut down, but we need to get the communication. We need to break the trauma bond first to create a conducive environment for everything else to happen. Mm, I love that. Um, One of the most powerful um, phrases I came up with when it comes to alcohol, right? Because I'm the same. I say you need to end that relationship with alcohol, right? For me, when you say the thought of a drink makes you feel, like for me, it's like I am allergic to alcohol. And that's the end of it, right? So I've cut it out of my life and I visualize a rope and some people, they try to hack through the rope. I want to end it. I want to end it. And they, uh, uh, and, and there's some strands hanging out and they pull you back in, right? So it's like gray rocking the, the relationship, right? And, and like, this is why I say when you've got a problem with drinking, moderation is virtually impossible. So my saying was moderation is like dumping a toxic ex and sleeping with them at the weekend. Right, because you're staying in the relationship. So, I love what you say about um, an old phone like a Nokia, um, and maybe you know I know someone close to me that reframed her emails as um, rather than from him, it was freedom. That was the name of the smart box, freedom. And you know, I always share this story in my group. I say, don't do what I did. So initially, when I first set up an email address um, for my ex, you know, because I realized I needed to do something. So this is kind of like stage one in a way. It still wasn't good. I wouldn't recommend doing it like this. But even when I set up an, a separate email address, I called the email address Mrs. Strawson the second because yeah. I now I thought that was really funny at the time as such um but actually what I was doing is I was still giving energy to that mm. I was still 
energy to all of that. I'm actually good friends with his first wife now as well, which is interesting. And he's on his third wife now. Um, you know, so definitely, you know, even the name, initially the name that I had in my phone when he was texting was lying, cheating, adulterous bastard. Yeah. That was what I had. Now, again, that might seem really funny. It's your nervous system, isn't it? Popping up, I was like, you know, I don't want excess cortisol in my body. That leads to disease and illness. So again, you know, I advise people to, if you have to, if people don't get a new phone, you know, like you say, choose a word that means freedom, like you said, or, you know, a tiny letter of their first name even, because they're so insignificant. They don't deserve even a capital letter as such. But Mm. you know, for me, a separate phone for emergencies, I call it the back phone, you know, if there's an emergency, then they they can call you on Mm. all of that a completely separate email address so you can track everything it's not in your emails and even and even if you did have it on your phone if you don't block which i was advised you should um you know have it on a separate page so it's not even the ones in all your inboxes as such mm. but to set yourself up for success in all boundaries when you're in a relationship with an artist or you've come out with there's a feeling of getting back to control right but in a, in a calm way i think and it's the same with booze it's like i i i don't take it for granted i'm never complacent but i feel really content with how calm i am around the subject of alcohol it's like i've got the control back um and i imagine it's the same as you now like i know this is what you do for a job and you're brilliant at it but you've got your life back where you were when you entered that relationship you said to me you were confident uh, in control of your life and drip, drip, drip. It's interestingly enough, I looked confident. I wasn't. I was showing confidence beforehand. You know, I do a lot of positive psychology in what I do. There's an amazing term in positive psychology called post-traumatic growth. I know where I am now, Dave, with, you know, my relationships, how I am as a mother, as a business owner, you know, healer, helping people. I wouldn't have I wouldn't be where I am had I not experienced all of that. I'm a, I live life on a much deeper level now because of the trauma that I went through. And when I look back, I think, gosh, I spent decades in dissociation. I spent decades in trying to numb out. I spent decades seeking my worth and validation from other people. And, you know, and of course, I was putting it in the hands of the wrong people a lot of the time as well. But I was still trying to prove myself. I don't need to prove myself anymore, you know. and and I hope I've taught my children that as well. You know, they know now at 15 and 19 what I didn't know till my 40s, you know. So, you know, they know that they're good enough just for who they are. It's not conditional. It's not how they look or the grades they get or anything else. I didn't realize that. I didn't know all of these things or feel them um, growing up. And one of the things that's really interesting, I thought I just mentioned this um, too from an alcohol perspective. When I look back, a lot of my family my friends and, um, you know, even my ex-husband's parents, um, gifts at Christmas and birthdays, it would be like a big wine glass. It was mm. like, it was almost like a jokiness of it. But clearly other people could see that I was drinking a lot and wine was a big part of my life. And that's, and I wouldn't necessarily drink other stuff. It was, it was wine. You know, wine was the thing. You know, if you had meals, you'd have a glass of wine. If I was cooking, I'd have a glass of wine. If I was watching the TV, I'd have a glass of wine. It was like the habit as such that if I was doing any of these things, I needed wine to go with it as well. And clearly others had noticed it, but I didn't notice that they'd noticed it. 
Did you lose friends um, along the way when you stopped drinking? I think when I always call it a friends cleanse. So when I started all my healing process and everything like that, I did lose friends, but I lost friends because I could actually see people for who they were. I didn't Mm. want groups that were toxic, gossiping about other people. So it distracted away from maybe how they were feeling. I didn't want to be in those circles of friends and groups. I have a small circle of friends now. I'm very particular where my energy goes as such too, because I don't want to be in circles where it's, you know, we have to tear people down for us to feel better. I don't want to be in groups where alcohol is a big part of having fun or anything else like that. And you know, for me, that that's a personal life choice. And I feel like I live life on a much deeper level because of it. So many tick boxes here, Caroline, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I know. Everything you're saying, I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> honestly. And do you know what? I had a situation yesterday that I could have quite easily um, rescued someone. And um, through my own boundaries, my personal boundaries, I chose not to. And and I referred them somewhere else, which was really the right thing to do for them and for me. And that is another thing that in the before, because I had low self-esteem, I was a chronic people pleaser. I mean, I used to shapeshift around anyone. I could go into a pub and there could be a solicitor, a builder, a milkman, like anyone. And I would lend myself to so they would like me and think I was a lovely bloke. Can so relate to all of that as well. Yeah. Did you know as well, you know, 80% of disease and illness is caused really by our stress and trauma responses. And, and people pleasers are the ones that often get the most diseases. I listened to a podcast the other day and it was saying 80% of autoimmune disorders are in women people pleasers because we're suppressing our voice because we need people to like us we need our validation from them so we suppress how we actually feel for fear of repercussions with all of that I do not want to be that person ends up getting a chronic illness or disease later on in my life because I'm suppressing my own trauma and that as well yeah and also what you said about um cancer as well um you know I think alcohol is the third biggest cause of breast cancer right and And the other things like menopause, I had Dr. Rebecca Lewis on talking about menopause and the symptoms. So the more I do this, the more I realize how they're so similar, all the symptoms, like the list I read out today. So when you remove alcohol from that, that gives you the opportunity to actually start to sit back and and address them, you know. And what, what you said about, like, your dad I can really relate to that. Now, I'm a big strapping six-foot bloke covered in tattoos, right? So if I said, oh, my mum and dad never told me that they loved me and they never cuddled me, like, man up. Yeah, but I'm, I'm all right saying that, right? Because when I went into my teens, I was really nervous, shy, insecure, and um, I attracted the wrong people, because I wanted them to like me and that and that then they did when I started drinking they didn't before but when I started drinking I was the comedian and that then manifested throughout my whole life of people pleasing so it has a knock-on effect and when I stopped drinking it was like time who am I like the last time I kind of knew myself was when I was 14 when I started drinking I was a kid like I didn't know myself so then it was that thing 
I have to reinvent myself. What does that mean? And it means self-development. It means sitting back and sitting with your feelings and thinking, okay, how can I improve how I feel about myself, self-esteem? And it all comes down to taking that vile, toxic drug out of the system, and that allows you the opportunity to do that. I totally agree. And I think particularly from a male perspective as well, you know, my partner now, he has three daughters and, you know, if any of them would fall over and things like this, he'd be like, oh, you're not bleeding, you're not dying, get up. And I would say you're invalidating how they feel. You know, mm. now when one of them cry and they don't, none of them cry or show their emotions, you know, and with my children, you know, I'm there, I'm hugging them and, I, you know, it's it's all in. And even my son, who's 19, he will cry, he will show his emotions because I've always taught him to express himself and that's mm. not a bad thing or anything. And, you know, my other half will sometimes say to me, oh, you really spoil them, you're really over the top with them. And I just go, it's called love. he's like because it is I don't see it as any of that other than I'm showing them love I'm showing them their worth I'm validating their experiences I'm seeing them I'm hearing them for who they are all of our attachment stuff and you know and and you know it's a whole other podcast his children and his family and stuff as well but you can see the difference then in like you say this whole element just because I have a son I treat my son emotionally exactly the same way Mm. as I it's so important yeah and he's it is personally aware you know he's in a relationship now at 19 you know and and every now and again I say to him you know she can thank me at some stage you know <laughs> so wonderful he doesn't leave her doubting herself or anything else but he has a real sense of autonomy and and that kind of self-confidence but not arrogance or anything but he's so kind but he will show his emotions you know he will show all of that and he doesn't see it as weak or as a failure, he sees it as a nervous system response to his external environment, which is what we need to feel. That's why it's there. Yeah. I'm into that, honestly. Uh, my son's the same. He's 29, and he'd give me a big fat kiss and a cuddle in front of all these big burly mates. Do you know what I mean? He'd say, I love you, Dad. You know? Because that's how I brought him up. And his mum brought him up like that, you know? So, so anyone listening to this podcast, there's probably a few tick boxes there for them as well. They can find you on Instagram, Caroline Strawson, but how, what is it you can do to help them? If they're currently in a relationship or they've come out of a relationship, I'm the guy that can help them with the, the drinking side, but how would you be able to help them? I mean, there's loads of stuff, you know, obviously I've got my podcast, the Narcissistic Abuse and Trauma Recovery Podcast. So there's lots of information on there. YouTube, I have a free Facebook group as well. So anyone's more than welcome. I have a te- I've just started a Telegram channel as well. So it's a bit more personal and we can kind of chat and everything. I've got so many masterclasses as well, you know, that if you're in any doubt, I mean, we talked about trauma bonding even today, you know, just email in hello at carolinestrawson.com. I'll send you the masterclass we've got. So I've got tons of free stuff and that too but I've got healing programs and things and what I found as well is particularly as we go through our own trauma and experience of you know toxic relationships was we often want to go and help other people so I actually run um coaching certifications around narcissistic trauma-informed coaching and also I run and it's actually the world's only trauma-informed coaching qualification it's a CMI level seven master's degree equivalent so I teach this stuff because I realize this stuff needs to be out there as well we need to know this stuff so it's across the board you know you can get free stuff you can get you know lower stuff to start to heal and then if you think actually I want to learn this and help others we've got that in place as well 
That's fantastic. And, and I think there'd be a lot of people that get a lot from this because, as I say, when I saw your account, it's like I felt ill-educated. And there was one post you said about flying monkeys, right, and it hit home so much that it's like I need to explore this more. And education is everything. That's why people that work for me, I don't just recommend quitlets. I recommend books on, you know, Dopamine Nation, that book, learning about serotonin, the nervous system. It all ties into what this issue is, right? And the more you know and learn about it, the more you can start to identify to symptoms that you're, you know, like for me, it was like a list of different things that I was feeling the way I was. It wasn't just to do with my childhood. It was to do with my current situation in my life, current relationships, job, jobs, low self-worth, you know, and you start to learn. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can't heal what we're unaware no. of. But like you say, it starts, you know, people seeing our work and things like this and educating and going, oh, that's me. And then signposting, well, what's next? You know, now we're aware, let's bring intention to that and let's start to educate and heal ourselves with that. Because all healing is self-healing. It's, yeah. it's all, I'm not a healer as in I heal you. I can facilitate your own self-healing, you know, because it's all within you already. It's just we've got to kind of get there and, and help and support people with that. Yeah, 100%. I, I just thought then of years ago, um, when I used to see my therapist, right, and I, he's like a god to me. I love him so much, and I still work with him. You know, people think I'm cured, but I I regularly have sessions with him to deal with things. I you know, I have a coach. I work regularly because yeah, you know, I'm going healing. Right, it's not a destination. No, exactly right. And I pulled over in the garage over the road to get a coffee. Right, and I thought well, I'm going to go home and get drunk anyway. I'll have a coffee you know, and forget all the great stuff that he's told me in the last hour. And in my mirror, I saw him walking across the road, right? And he looked so at peace with his life. There was something about him that was like, oh my God, I just want to be him. And I realized it was because he'd done so much self-development and obviously, well, not obviously, but he didn't drink as well. And I thought, I want to be that man. And I am that man now because I've worked so hard on myself that I can walk out of my door and walk down the road with a feeling of, I'm okay, I am. And and it's so important, you know, like for me, but for people around me, of course, but for me to wake up and think, I'm doing okay, I am. You know, I'm 59 now. When I gave up, I was 54 I could have easily have thought I've been doing it all my life now as a bloke as well. I know a lot of blokes. Don't look 59 either. This is the thing. You know, I look back and I think, God, I think I look younger now than I did back then because alcohol was aging me. It really yeah, but was- the, And the stress of it all, you know, the, the knock on effects, what you say about the dysfunctional eating, you know, it's like a domino effect, isn't it? It's like no sleep, uh, pure anxiety, cortisol, adrenaline, um, knock-on effects with relationships like the whole thing just is a downward spiral so you take one thing out whether that's remove yourself from that narcissistic relationship or both alcohol and that it's like then you think Do you know what I've got somewhere to to move forward now with the self-development and and it's just life-changing and you know thank you for that uh compliment I'm not going to let that go <laughs> You definitely don't. I would never have said that. Well, it's a, the Zoom filter probably. But anyway, 
No, it's not. I don't look 59. How about that? There's no, myself. No, cool. take, take the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Caroline, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to put all uh, your links and that in the show notes. For if anyone wants to find you, um, they can look on the show notes. And also I'll, put, I'll tag you in the uh, podcast as well. And I want to say thank you, one, for everything you do. Uh, but thank you also for joining me today because it's something I've been looking forward to for a long time and it's so lovely. And I've got an idea that our work together won't end here. So I look forward to uh, the future. I'll be sharing this with my audience because I think a lot of my audience as well will relate to the alcohol part of this too. Yeah, absolutely. Great. All right, Caroline. Lovely to see you and thanks a lot. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.